This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Aiko Takeuchi Demersi, lecturer in the Department of Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Stanford University. Dr. Takeuchi Demersi is the author of Contraceptive Diplomacy, Reproductive Politics, and Imperial Ambitions in the United States and Japan, published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Dr. Takeuchi Demersi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. You recently published this book, Contraceptive Diplomacy, centering on two prominent birth control activists in the U.S. and Japan, Margaret Sanger and Ishimoto Shizue, who is actually even often called the Margaret Sanger of Japan. For those of us less familiar with Ishimoto, can you introduce her and also describe what led you to writing this book? So Margaret Sanger is the iconic American birth control activist. And Ishimoto Shizue is often described as her Japanese counterpart. And overall, I, I believe this description is true because Ishimoto was greatly inspired by Sanger's birth control activism and remained close friends with her throughout her life and continued to spread the Sangerist style of birth control activism in Japan. And I say Sangerist style, and this is not a term that I coined, but because there were different philosophies and positions on birth control in Japan, depending on the class position or whether you also supported abortion or not, and which specific birth control method you advocated. And Sanger and Ishimoto met for the first time in New York City in 1920. And when I read about Margaret Sanger's meeting a Japanese lady in New York, I was instantly fascinated because I was interested in exploring the lives of people who formed bridges between the U.S. and Japan before and during the war years. So I thought, who was this Japanese lady? And what was she doing in New York? And why did these two women meet? It turned out... Sanger was affiliated with the Socialist Party at the time and lived in a socialist community in New York City. And Ishimoto was there for two years, accompanying her husband, who was inspired by socialist ideas and was drawn to the transnational socialist community there. The Ishimotos were from an upper-class samurai family, but like many liberal intellectuals and reformers during the Taisho period, they were inspired by the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the rise of revolutionary movements throughout the world after World War I. These intellectuals were searching for solutions for social problems that Japan was facing as a consequence of rapid industrialization, such as poverty, food shortage, frequent riots, and overcrowding in cities. An interesting fact is that socialists were the first major group that drove the birth control movement in the early 20th century. Many of them saw birth control as a useful concept and tool to stand up against capitalist exploitation. Multiple pregnancy took a heavy toll on working families, especially women, physically and financially. Ishimoto did not necessarily identify herself as a socialist, nor did she even know anything about the birth control movement before she met Sanger, although the subject was already discussed by some feminists in the 1910s, along with other subjects such as abortion, chastity, and motherhood protection. 
But Ishimoto did witness, along with her husband, the harsh lives of working class families at coal mines in Japan. She was also exposed to liberal ideas since early in her life, since her family held study groups at home with regular famous guests, including the renowned Christian humanist Nitobe Inazo. So when she had the opportunity to meet Sanger in New York City through the socialist community, she was immediately inspired by her birth control cause. So the birth control movement in the early 20th century was part of a broader intellectual trend and transnational social movements at the time linked with notions about changing gender roles, class struggles, and also imperialist competitions. The broad implications of this issue and the complexity of the flow of social thoughts are what drew me to the subject. As you mentioned, there is earlier women's rights movements in Japan, and we often think about, say, the female speakers in the people's rights movement in the Meiji period and these petition drives against concubinage. And then in the Taisho period, the feminist movement, women like Hirasuka Raicho, Yamakawa Kikue, Ichikawa Fusai, advocating for increased legal rights for women, along with, as you mentioned, abortion as well. But you said it's birth control that Ishimoto Shizue really focuses on. Why is it that she focuses on birth control? And then how does that fit into this larger women's rights platform at the time? So Ishimoto became one of the most influential and famous female activists in Japan in the 20th century through her birth control activism. But before she met Sanger, as I said, she didn't know about the subject and she was still young. So she wasn't necessarily part of the earlier discussions about women's rights and women's suffrage. However, she was familiar with the latest intellectual theories. So once she came back to Japan in 1921, she was ready to gather other intellectuals' interest in the birth control cause and began her career as a birth control activist. Birth control was not strictly illegal in Japan, at least until the 1930 ordinance that banned harmful contraceptives, but it was still a subject not to be discussed openly and publicly, especially when it came to the civic methods. And Margaret Sanger's birth control idea was initially classified as foreign dangerous thoughts when she first arrived to Japan in 1922. But some feminists, led by Hiratsuka Raicho, tried to bring birth control onto the legal platform by linking it to the campaign against venereal disease. These feminists petitioned the Diet to pass a bill that would prohibit men with venereal disease from marrying. The idea was deeply tied to eugenics thoughts of race betterment, which was also an influential idea that shaped the early birth control movement and also to the context of Japan's imperialist expansion with the implication that Japanese soldiers sent abroad were coming home with sexually transmitted disease. This petition in the end did not pass because of the wartime government's overall pro-natalist position, but the legal status of birth control turned almost 180 degrees after World War II in the context of the post-war baby boom. Now, by this time, Ishimoto, who was now remarried and changed her last name to Kato, played a central part in the legalization process of birth control as one of the first 
female Diet members elected in the first post-war election. So in the first post-war Diet session in 1947, Kato, together with two other Diet members, proposed a bill that would legalize abortion, birth control, and sterilization, mainly from a eugenics standpoint. This was meant to be a modification of the wartime national eugenic law, which was modeled after the Nazi sterilization law. But in the end, this law was ineffective because it was incompatible with the government's overall call for pronatalism. In the post-war legislation, conservative physician diet member eventually took over the process, and the bill was eventually passed and enacted in 1948 as the eugenic protection law. The law did not cover birth control at the beginning, only abortion and sterilization for eugenic reasons, but the birth control clause was added eventually in the 1952 amendment. So the whole legal processes during which birth control supporters had to compromise with conservative politicians revealed how birth control became integrated into official discourses that supported the nation state and traditional gender roles. As I argue in the book, this is a significant departure from what early birth control activists had envisioned, which was to challenge traditional gender roles, the capitalist order, and imperialism. In the book, you describe Margaret Sanger's visit to Japan in 1922, writing that the cultural impact of her visit was much like a second coming of the black ships, of course, referring to Matthew Perry's visit in 1853. What made it such a huge event? And I'm really curious what the press coverage of her visit was like. So Sanger's first visit to Japan in 1922 was likened to Perry's 1853 visit that opened Japan to foreign trade because people expected that Sanger would open Japan to new sexual practices. Of course, birth control itself was nothing new in Japan. And like I said, some intellectuals had already been discussing Sanger's birth control activism, as well as Mary Stopes in England, her birth control activism as well. Sanger's visit brought the conversation on birth control to the general masses, many of whom were desperately searching for safe and reliable methods of birth control. Some officials were afraid of Sanger's impact and tried to prevent her arrival by denying her visa, mostly because Sanger at the time was associated with radical campaigns through the Socialist Party. In the end, Sanger was allowed to enter Japan, but the government's confusion only gave more publicity about Sanger's arrival. And so hundreds of people gathered to listen to her public lecture in Tokyo. However, the newspaper coverage reported that many people went home disappointed because they did not hear the actual birth control methods from her. In fact, as a condition of landing to Japan, Sanger had promised the authorities not to talk publicly about the actual methods of birth control. So her lecture was more generally and theoretically about population and its relation with war and so on. 
However, she was able to share more of the specific information in private meetings with professionals. And some of these professionals, including labor activists and biology professor called Yamamoto Senji, helped introduce some of Sanger's methods to the general public. You mentioned that some of the audience members who went to Margaret Sanger's talks went home disappointed because they didn't get to hear some of her methods. I'm curious how she reacted to what she saw going on in Japan. I recall reading that American feminists, when they came to Japan, they were often quite critical of the Japanese feminist movement, particularly over issues of motherhood. They said, well, the Japanese feminists aren't quite radical enough. And the Japanese feminists were saying, well, we have different ideas of what we need to do. But even Margaret Sanger's ideas about birth control were quite controversial in the U.S., weren't they? Sanger did show some interest in the feminist movement in Japan. And she, in fact, she wrote an article about women in Japan, citing some of the writings from Yamaka Kikue. But during her visit, she did not connect personally with Japanese feminists, even though some of them greeted her, other than Ishimoto. She believed that the birth control movement in Japan was driven by male professionals who accepted Western science and modern ideologies. This might be because male professionals did monopolize the meetings with Sanger when she visited Japan. But Sanger's perception was also misguided because birth control was one of the main topics discussed by leading feminists such as Hiraska Raicho and Yamakawa Kikue. And these feminists were just as involved as male professionals in the birth control movement, even though it was true that they were often marginalized in the campaigns. In comparison, as you correctly point out, Sanger's birth control was marginalized in the U.S. feminist movement. And it was a topic that was generally shunned by mainstream feminists. This is despite the fact that Sanger's cause became much less radical and compatible with mainstream discourses towards the 1930s on by linking it to eugenics and race betterment and medical necessity. And it was also fundamentally a pro motherhood ideology in that Sanger never actually denied motherhood but advocated birth control for a better motherhood. Interestingly, many American feminists, as well as Sanger, I might say, welcomed Ishimoto when she visited the United States for her own lecture tours in the 1930s, even though these American feminists did not truly endorse Sanger's birth control cause. Now, there are a couple of reasons for Ishimoto's popularity in the United States. First of all, she represented the Orientalist imagery of a Japanese lady from a samurai family. And during her um, lecture tours, Ishimoto always dressed in traditional kimono, even though she confessed that she was not really comfortable in it. And, but she believed that it gave a good platform for friendship between different cultures and nations. Um, second, she represented a pacifist alternative to the image of masculine, imperialist aggression of the Japanese military by offering birth control as a solution to Japan's population problem and expansionism. 
And at this time, a lot of Americans were worried about Japan's military expansion in China and in the Pacific and、um, saw that as causing all international problems and disturbances, especially among imperialist nations. And finally, the American media also described her as Tokyo's first businesswoman because she held a Personal business for a short period selling American yarn to Japanese customers. This probably made Ishimoto closer to the standards of American feminists in terms of seeking empowerment outside the home, as you mentioned. So, in short, for American feminists, Ishimoto represented the best of two worlds. She held the beauty and tradition of ancient Japan. While in the inside, she held a progressive westernized spirit. We've been talking mainly about pre war activities, but if we move into the post war, and especially into the post war women's liberation movement, and particularly in the 1970s, birth control again comes to the forefront. But now it's the leader, Enoki Misako, who leads the Chupi Dead movement, famous with their pink hard hats, championing women's access to birth control in the 1970s. I believe Ishimoto was still alive at the time, so I'm curious what, if any, relationship there was between them. Did Chupi Dead draw inspiration from Ishimoto's earlier efforts? Did Ishimoto play a role in the post war movement? Or what kind of relationship was there? Yeah, by the way, now I'll call her as Kato because we're talking about the post war period. But she, she lived a long life. She lived over the age of 100. I'm not sure exactly which age it was. So she had a long political career after the war as well. So Kato was also president of the Family Planning Federation of Japan, which was the Japanese affiliate of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. And she served for about four decades. And so this was during the debates over the pill in Japan until it was finally legalized in 1999. But most family planning organizations and women's groups in Japan were initially opposed to the pill or just stayed on the sideline of the debate when Chupiran advocated for the pill in the 1970s. They were concerned about the drug's side effects, and rightly so, because the early high dose pills had a lot of health risks. And many feminists, including Kato, also felt that this was a case where pharmaceutical companies were pushing the government and favoring economic interests over the health and safety of women. And also, Chupiren was seen by many Japanese mainstream feminists as too radical and splashy. So, Enoki might have been inspired by early champions of the birth control movement like Kato, but probably the opposite was not true. It was not until the mid 1980s that Kato came to support the pill and petitioned the government for its legalization, now claiming that its safety and effectiveness had been established with the lower dose pills. It still took more than a decade for the government to finally approve the sales of the low dose contraceptive pill, but the pill was already legalized in the United States in 1960 in the context of the debates over global overpopulation. Meanwhile, in Japan, although the government initially participated in the early research and experimentation of the hormonal. Contraceptives upon the urging of Sanger and other American birth control activists. 
they soon lost interest in it, mostly because Japan's birth rates had already started to decline soon after the war, and other traditional methods, mostly condoms, were readily available and assumed to be enough for the Japanese. This lengthy process of the pill's legalization can be compared to the speedy six-month approval of the Viagra, the drug for male impotence, earlier the same year that the contraceptive pill was finally approved. You also mentioned before that one of the things that marks Kato, what makes her notable, is that she's one of the few female politicians elected to the diet. And so I'm curious, to what extent did Kato continue her activism on behalf of the women and on behalf of birth control while she was in the diet? So Kato was, during the war, she was arrested and thrown into jail briefly by the Japanese authorities. But after the war, because she was one of the well-known pro-American Japanese, she was consulted directly by occupation officials on some woman-related policies since early in the occupation. During the first post-war election, she was actually urged by occupation officials to run for a seat in the diet. She initially did not plan to do so because her husband, Kato Kanju, was also running for the diet and she was focused on his campaign until one of the uh, occupation officials visited her home and asked, why are you not running? So um, in, in the end, she did and she won. And and one of the first and major campaigns she embarked on in the diet is, as I mentioned, to pass the eugenic protection law, which legalized abortion, sterilization, and later birth control. She also served in the Constitutional Committee to discuss the new constitution, being one of the only two female members in the group. There, she also pressed for the abolition of the traditional family system that discriminated against women and instead proposed for gender equality in the civil law in terms of marriage, divorce, and inheritance rights. So although she remained a central part of the post-war birth control movement as president of the Family Planning Federation of Japan, during her political career in the post-war decades, Kato took on various causes, both women-related issues and as well as broader social issues such as environmental problems and also international relations, especially she seemed very involved in restoring relations with other Asian nations formerly under Japanese colonial rule. I think she was involved in this movement called Moral Rearmament movement, but she took on a variety of political roles and campaigns during her political career. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.